This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, thank you for having me here. Um, so this is the diagram that Suda had created on uh, the different lenses and uh, intersection where integrative mental health exists. So there's self-care, uh, complementary alternative medicine, and then conventional psychiatry and bringing it together to include uh, lifestyle medicine and integrative psychiatry. Yeah. So I was very inspired by uh, Suda's Venn diagram, and my whole talk today will be about the different lenses and viewpoints and perspectives that we have on the mind-body connection. So I wanted to start with my narrative journey first. And so I was uh, born in Pennsylvania, but I grew up in Singapore, and Singapore is a melting pot of cultures, and so it taught me about lifestyle, culture, and upbringing, shaping an individual's life story. And then I went back to Pennsylvania, <laughs> and um, there I worked at a Center for Integrative Medicine for the uh, University of Pittsburgh uh, Men um, Medical Center, and I learned that, you know, uh, it's more than just symptoms and diagnosis. It's really about expanding how we define illness and health and the self-care, so bringing that Venn diagram together. Then I went to Arizona for osteopathic medical school where the tenets of osteopathic medicine is that the body is completely, completely united, the person is fully integrated uh, being of body, mind, and spirit. And that influenced my desire to talk to you about the subject today. And the body is capable of self-regulation, self-healing, and health maintenance. And structure and function are reciprocally interrelated. So then I went to Hawaii to complete my psychiatry residency, uh, where I learned more about the different dimensions of whole person medicine and looking at the emotional and physical components. And then now I'm here in San Francisco. Um, where I'm, I feel very grateful to be part of the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine, where we have a tribe of our integrative health community. And there's this inclusive nature of all kinds of healing paradigms, the diversity of healing paradigms that are out there. Uh, so again, I'm going to be looking at the different perspectives of the historical lens, how that influences our societal view on the mind-body connection, or disconnection, uh, also how that influences our support system lens and uh, the medical team lens as well as the scientific lens. So looking at the historical lens first, I'm going to go kind of in chronological order. So in the Stone Age, they used skull trepanation, and that was for any behaviors that deviated from norms. So usually those were psychiatric neurologic um, symptoms and also headaches. And they thought the cause was because there were evil spirits in the head. And so what they would do, they would drill a burr hole into the skull until the brain tissue showed. And that was a way to, they thought, to release evil spirits. So we actually still do this today. Um, there's another term for it. It's called craniotomy. And that's to kind of help um, release blood uh, that has pulled in the brain. And that's for what we call subdural and epidural hematomas. So then looking at ancient Greece, and you may have heard of the Hippocratic Oath. So Hippocrates is regarded as the father of modern medicine, and the Hippocratic Oath, is a modified version, is still taken by all physicians today. 
Uh, so he proposed that there's a temperament of four humors. Um, and Geronima Corteze last week had talked to us a little bit about this, but to uh, reiterate her point, there was uh, the blood, yellow, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. And they thought that blood was related to uh, the season of spring and caused someone to be enthusiastic and social, whereas uh, yellow bile caused someone to become more angry and impulsive. And uh, today, maybe we could say that's a little bit towards the mania side. Um, and then the phlegm was related to being apathetic and black bile, um, black meaning uh, this, this word of melancholic, so melon meaning black, um, could be related to being sad and depressed. And so uh, this was the start of a reductionistic view, reducing complex states into more simpler physical terms. And there's a thought that there was a simple humoral imbalance that we were treating that led to these complex emotional causes and that things should be treated with Antidotes, so treatment of opposites. So if there was too much of the humors, they would deplete the humors, and they would use things like leeches for bloodletting or purging. Um, and hot diseases like fever, they would treat it with cold medicines. So Hippocrates also coined this term hysteria. And hystera in Greek is, is Greek for uterus. And so some of the symptoms that they thought were related to hysteria was this excessive emotion conveying this sense of suffocation or distress. And maybe today we'd call it high anxiety, respiratory, or intestinal distress. And this is the proposed cause, so that a dry uterus wanders in the body in search for moisture and pushes on body parts communicating distress. And the treatment was putting pleasant uh, aromas in certain places versus also repelling aromas to put the uterus back in place. And it's thought that uh, hysteria was one reason that women had few rights because they were thought to have um, be unable to make a rational decision. So in uh, the hundreds AD, there's Galen, and he's the physician of the Roman Empire and a loyalist of the theory of humors. And his specialty was dissecting illness of the body and kind of it led to this compartmentalizing of an emotion. So he was a reductionist and he was focused on separating organic versus non-organic. And his theories were actually the mainstay of Western medical science for 1,500 years. So they stayed for a long time. And so this is one case that Galen describes, this woman with insomnia. So just like today, uh, he was ruling out causes of these humoral causes. And then he did a physical exam and noticed that when, by chance, he was mentioning this famous dancer's name, that this sudden irregular impulse would happen with uh, this woman. And he thought it was a clue to the agitated mind. So his diagnosis was that this woman was in love with, a, with the dancer because it wouldn't flutter with other dancers that he mentioned. And he had this um, manual for treating psychological symptoms called On the Diagnosis and Cure of the Soul's Passion. And he suggested counseling patients to explore their deepest self. And this is an early form of psychotherapy. And so he also described six non-naturals. And these were thought to be outside of the body, not innate. And 
environmental factors that involve that were involved in the preservation of health. So today we may call it self-care. And uh, he thought that there these were the six non-naturals: passions and emotions, air, motion and rest, which was including exercise, sleep and waking, taking uh, things taken in by food or by drink, or an evacuation and retention. And so he looked at the, this was the beginning of looking at the passions and emotions and their impact of, on physical health and illness. The Middle Ages, so uh, mental illness was thought to be caused by curse, wrongdoing, or sin. And there are these supernatural theories of mental illness. So demonic possession, witchcraft, black magic, the evil eye, being cursed, religious punishment. And there are these rituals, including you may recognize from the Stone Ages the um, trephining of the with the hole into the skull to release evil spirits. Um, there were exorcisms and magic spells and religious practices. So into the 18th century, mental illness was stigmatized, and that led to some of the asylums with no windows being chained to beds, beaten, and with little contact with caregivers. And the focus was actually not for treatment, but to ostracize those with psychological disorders from society. Uh, In late 1700s, there was a French physician named Philippe Pinel, and he actually advocated for humane moral treatment. And so he thought that uh, the asylum shouldn't be a prison, they should be a hospital, and unchained the patients so that they could leave, and he valued social interactions with the caregivers and also valued emotions. And so I also wanted to talk about the effect of some of the common 19th century treatments on the mind-body. So first being mercury, which they called calomel, and it was an antiseptic, diuretic, and laxative. But it had toxic effects on the body of blindness, memory loss, numbness, and seizures. And cocaine, Uh, was a local anesthetic in lozenges and tooth drops. And it also uh, was in Coca-Cola in the late 1800s. So there was this cola nuts plus the coca leaves. And you can see this ad here, tired, then drink Coca-Cola. It relieves exhaustion. (laughs) And and as a side note, um, lithium, uh, its uh, chemical compound is close to the weight of seven. And so it used to be put in seven up to increase energy, so yeah. (laughs) And talking about morphine and heroin, so morphine was used to control cough and diarrhea and to soothe infants and children. Um, So this Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup had 65 milligrams of pure morphine per fluid ounce, (laughs) which is quite a bit, yeah. Uh, And for heroin, it was used as a cough suppressant and marketed as this non-addictive substitute for morphine um, and until it was banned in 1924. So therapeutic seizures, it's been one of our ways to address uh, severe mental illness. And so in the 1500s, we used camphor to induce seizures and treat mental illness. And in the 1920s, Um, insulin shock therapy was used to treat schizophrenia. So there was this purposeful injection of um, insulin to cause convulsions. And in 1938, um, this was the beginning of electroconvulsive therapy. And it's the use of electricity to induce a seizure, and it led to the first successful treatment of a patient with schizophrenia. 
Today, we still use electroconvulsive therapy as this reboot of brain chemistry, but it's under much more regulated conditions and not like the movies, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, it's, it's used, we use muscle relaxers, general anesthesia, and there's a very brief, low-intensity electrical pulse. So in the 1930s and 1950s, we had ice pick lobotomy, and this was surgery for the soul. And it was thought to stabilize intense emotions, um, including psychosis, depression, anxiety, and pain. And the procedure involved the doctor driving a slender instrument through the tear duct, hammering until until breaking part of the skull to reveal the front part of the cortex. And this was called this revolutionary treatment. So, so much that the psychiatrist who had invented the procedure, Walter Freeman, won a Nobel Prize. Uh, So the procedure is phased out with the development of antipsychotic medications um, towards the 1950s. So now I want to talk more about the societal lens and how the historical lens influences the societal lens. And you may have heard this statement, mind over matter. It's to use willpower to overcome physical issues. And we start to think about how expression and recognition of mental health is shaped by our personal values and viewpoints. So, um, you know, I can't say that I can speak to everyone's cultures, but I can speak to my own. So speaking to my own lens as an Asian American, there's a lot of social stigma and shame to those seeking behavioral health services. And there's also high emphasis on not shaming the family, bringing honor to the family. And so in um, some of the, at least the Chinese American culture, it's more likely that you're going to express mental illness through physical symptoms. So I'm going to go into the scientific lens now. So this is Descartes. Um, He's credited for beginning the mind-body split, so dualism, in the 17th century. Um, So he started talking about how body was like matter, and he called it res extensa, so because it took up space and it was non-thinking, and it's like furniture or these, these rocks here. And the brain is also considered physical matter, something that is tangible. So anything that was not tangible he considered um, maybe part of the mind. This is a substance that has thinks and is non-material. It's conscious, and it's this lever controlling the machine, which is the body, matter, including the brain. So looking deeper at the scientific lens, uh, what we value as a scientist is evidence, facts, and that it's concrete, something tangible, objective, and looking at patterns and why do I see them so that I can come to a generalized conclusion. Uh, We also look at validity so that a test measures what it's supposed to measure, reliability so that you get the same results each time. But the mind is very unique and complex, and the experience of emotion and suffering is really unique to the individual. So that may not really fit well into the scientific lens. And so a scientist may call um, that unique, complex mind not tangible, difficult to pin down outside of the box. And because of that, they may be thought to have um, non-valid underpinnings. And there's this risk of suggesting that a person is suffering emotional illness because they're feigning um, the illness. And it may actually influence the 
individuals, the patients, the caregivers, to seek extensive lab and labs and imagings to find this root uh, biological cause. So that all of this so far also influences the medical lens. So conventional medicine, or what we call mainstream medicine today, um, it really talks about the dominant health system based on culture and historical period. That's why I spent some time looking at the uh, history. So it's medical interventions meeting accepted standards of care, and it's a training that's taught in U.S. medical schools and residency programs. And um, as you can see, there's been an evolution of what we consider conventional medicine. So today, what conventional medicine is regarded as uh, biomedicine or Western medicine. And the 1910 Flexner Report was one thing that really uh, drove the standardization of medical schools, and it called for strict adherence to evidence-based scientific studies. And so this led to um, valuing biomedicine or Western medicine over other modalities. And if we talk about mind-body dualism here, we have different specialties that also represent this. So, uh, you know, we have the general internists who study the body systems. We have a neurologist that studies the brain. And then we have psychiatry and psychology that studies the mind. Um, so if a practitioner or patient uh, thinks that there is this medical mimic or a diagnosis, diagnosis of exclusion, they may... Uh, consult the psychiatry team to evaluate for a psychosomatic disorder. Conversely, if a psychiatrist or therapist or patient or their supports thinks the presentation is organic or kind of like that body of matter, then that may lead to psychiatric workup where we review medications, check the blood, urine for the presence of drugs, substances, electrolyte or hormonal imbalances. Um, and there's plus minus that we may consult um, the internal medicine or hospitalist team, and there's less stigma going this way. So I want to talk about why this is. So again, with reductionism in biomedicine, the body is felt to have concrete, tangible things that fit in a box. And there's actually some pros to this because it offers clear boundaries and certainty, and that's really good for acute life-threatening diseases. And so here's an example. If we had the concrete signs that you developed acute uh, right lower abdomen pain and you had a fever, there's a high chance that you may have appendicitis. And that leads us to down the road of finding a specialist who you really, I think you want a surgeon to, to operate on the appendix and perform the specialized treatment. So that's where it is good to have some boundaries and a focused lens. But that leads to any illness with poorly defined or abstract boundaries, such as many of the complex mind-body illnesses, to be kind of outcasted from this model. And again, risk of labeling illnesses not real and faint. So scope of practice also talks about our lens, and it can be organized by organ system or by stage of life, and um, there are times that you do want the, these expert-focused lenses, and so these are just some of the examples of all the different specialties out there. And conventional psychiatry today, um, there are a couple things that we do. The biopsychosocial formulation is um, part of every conventional psych psychiatrist plan, and it's unique to the individual. And we also look at labs and imaging to 
look at what are the organic illnesses versus psychiatric illnesses. And the psychiatric treatments involve medications or procedures that there's this presumed dysfunction at the level of neurotransmitters or brain circuits. And we also, part of conventional psychiatry also includes psychotherapy um, and also some of the mind-body therapies. I think mindfulness now is very mainstream. And so I'm not going to go over too much of this, but just to show you all the different dimensions that a conventional psychiatrist may look at um, a patient with. So they try to look at the personal viewpoint of biological influences, uh, psychological influences, and social influences. And they look at the timing of when they started um, before kind of the illness or were there stressors that caused the illness or things that kept the illness going or were there things that were more protective. And so three reasons why behavioral medicine is really uniquely situated to bridge biomedicine and be inclusive of an array of healing modalities is because there is a respect for the unique whole person and, again, use of the biopsychosocial formulation, um, an appreciation for healing that occurs on multiple levels, that it is bidirectional. Um, the mind-body connection is bidirectional, and this emphasis on therapeutic alliance, so uh, this partnership between the individual but also all of the um, people who contribute to their care. And so I wanted to talk about the definition of integrative medicine. Everybody has their own lens on what they call integrative medicine, but to me this is um, my definition. An approach to healing that explores the whole person, including individual values and lifestyle, while making use of all appropriate and evidence-informed therapeutic modalities, healthcare professionals, and disciplines to promote optimal well-being. And you may have heard this term, the integrated care model, and this is what we may call medical home. So it's patient-centered care. It's collaborative uh, with a treatment team, and it involves usually the primary care physician, but also where a behavioral health specialist will be in the same center, and there may be this central care coordinator. And the goals are to improve access to care, support the continuity of care, um, lead to preventive strategies, and promote education amongst the providers. Um, and hopefully lessen the stigma associated with mental illness because patients may be presenting at the primary care doctor as opposed to um, going to the psychiatrist. So I want to just differentiate that from integrative um, care where we still use many of the collaborative treatment model things, but it can represent um, a diverse uh, array of healing modalities. And then there's also... um, other terms of holistic medicine, complementary medicine, functional medicine, alternative medicine. I'll talk about that in a moment. So um, you can see with the evolving uh, terminology of the National Institutes of Health, we can see this kind of change in the acceptance of integrative medicine. So there used to be, in 1991, they started with the Office of Alternative Medicine, and alternative medicine means in place of conventional medicine. Then they changed their name to the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine in 1998. And so complementary medicine means together with conventional medicine. And finally, uh, fairly recently, it's now the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health. And that was in 2014. And it describes integrative medicine, which is um, complementary alternative medicine, but together with the coordination of providers. And with the NCAM classification, they had five domains. 
of how they wanted to sort the healing paradigm. So less conventional biological, mind-body, somatic um, or manipulative, like massage, um, energy therapies, and whole medical systems or traditional medicine, like traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurveda. So since 2014, uh, with the change of their name, they just now have two groups, and it's natural products or mind and body practices. I think it is to recognize that there are many overlaps. So looking at complementary health approaches more, the National Health Interview Survey is an annual survey that's given to 30,000 households. Um, But every five years, they have uh, questions about complementary health approaches. And pretty consistently, it shows that one-third of uh, the U.S. adults use a complementary health approach every year. And if we just look at mind-body practices, these are the most common ones that come up. So yoga, uh, chiropractic or osteopathic manipulation, meditation, and massage therapy. And then there was a study that looked at the 2007 results. Um, It actually takes some time before the study comes out, so it came out in 2013. Uh, But it looked at patients with neuropsychiatric symptoms and how often they were using complementary alternative medicine. And it showed that 43.8% versus 29.7% were using uh, CAM approaches. And the more neuropsychiatric symptoms you had, the more likely you were to use CAM and most common mind-body medicine. And a lot were using CAM because standard treatments were too expensive or ineffective, um, and also because it was recommended by the conventional provider. So I want to focus a little bit more on the term mind-body. And so here we see it separate again, kind of like Descartes, with the mind and then the brain and body. And so this is what we call dualism, two separate entities. Um, And this is what the biomedical model usually uses, a dualism um, specialization approach. But if we look at the connection, there's something called non-duality, where the mind and body are actually inseparable. And that's um, more often used in a model of looking at someone from the whole person perspective. And so some of the phrases, I know Geronima also uh, talked about these, but these phrases that express anxiety, elation, surprise, and they they clue into this mind-gut-brain connection. So a gut-wrenching experience, a pit in my stomach, or butterflies in my stomach, or I've got a gut feeling, like an intuition about it. I wanted to talk about this hydra. So this was a primitive marine animal with a floating digestive tube that uh, was surrounded by a nerve net. And there are some theories about how this um, being came to be. So uh, algae in the ocean settled inside the digestive system of the hydra, and it's thought that microbes started living inside the system and using their own form of communication that was developed for 4 billion years in the oceans and producing these neuroactive substances like um, things that are related to serotonin or GABA. Uh, and the microbes then started to communicate with the nerve cells of the hydra. And so this is a fairly recent article that was actually published in 2018, uh, talking a little bit more about how the hydra um, was one of the representations that le- leads us to believe that they, this uh, separate um, brain system is inside the gut, called the enteric nervous system. 
And so the enteric nervous system, it's the mind of its own. It's neurons lining the gut that has its own reflexes and senses, and this unique ability to function independently from the central nervous system. The vagus nerve is what we think of when we think about resting and digesting. And actually, vagus nerve stimulation is one treatment for depression. And gut bacteria, probiotics, um, produce and respond to the same neurotransmitters that the brain uses to regulate mood and cognition. So GABA, um, which is a calming chemical, serotonin, which is also calming, norepinephrine, which is related to kind of your fight-or-flight system and anxiety and pain, dopamine, your kind of motivation hormone, uh, acetylcholine memory, and melatonin, which is derived from serotonin to help you with sleep. Uh, the gut actually makes three-fourths of our neurotransmitters, and 95% of, the, of serotonin is found in the gut. So that's why when we talk about side effects of antidepressants, some of the side effects are gastrointestinal distress because it's affecting the serotonin in the gut. And if we look at the bidirectional communication, uh, gastro, we all know that gastrointestinal distress sometimes can lead to anxiety and depression. And conversely, stress, anxiety, depression can affect the movement and contractions of the GI tract. So in a biomedical model, um, a lot of my training as a psychiatrist was differential diagnosis and fitting things in a box um, from our diagnostic Bible called the DSM. And it was the search for organic or physical root causes and differentiating them from psychiatric. So some of the examples that are part of the anxiety differential are usually things that involve kind of the fight-or-flight system. So stimulants, um, if you have a withdrawal from something that is usually calming, uh, uh, your hormone system, which is involved with the stress response, and anything you can think of that can cause like the anxiety attack, those systems are also involved. So, for example, like breathing usually gets faster, and we think of pulmonary embolisms or hyperventilations or cardiac arrhythmias. And the differential for depression is pretty much anything that affects sleep fatigue or leads to a drop in function. So, any kind of stimulant withdrawal. Um, some of the autoimmune diseases where your body's attacking itself or infections, and some hormonal diseases and certain medications can also um, be associated with depression. So I want to come back to hysteria. Um, so in this little newspaper clipping, it says, crying, sobbing, laughing. Uh, she has no control over herself. <laughs> so uh, this is questioning the validity of hysteria as a real disease, and it's there's this thought that the individual may be mimicking symptoms of other more definable diseases, and then it became this umbrella term for less definable illnesses. So I wanted to talk more about the evolution of terms of what we now call functional neurological symptom disorder, and this is based on the recent diagnostic statistical manual which we use in psychiatry. So in the 17th century, um, Thomas Sydenham was a British physician known for writing the standard textbook of medicine at that time. And he started to question if hysteria was actually a disorder of the brain and nervous system. Sigmund Freud, you may have heard of him. He is this Austrian neurologist and uh, known as the father of psychoanalysis. And he hypothesized that an unconscious, unresolved mental conflict converted into body symptoms or physical symptoms and classified this phenomenon as conversion disorder. 
It wasn't until 1980 that this diagnosis of hysterical neurosis conversion type was replaced with just conversion disorder. And it was defined as a mental condition in which signs and symptoms affecting voluntary motor or sensory function could not be explained by a general medical condition. So again, pushing things outside of the box um, because it's too complex. Uh, And so in a biomedical framework, the diagnosis required confirmation by a neurologist that this presentation was indeed non-organic. And so now, again, it's called functional neurological symptom disorder. And actually, the DSM still has conversion disorder in parentheses. And it's thought to um, some of the signs are a sudden loss of sensory or motor function. And this is when uh, the consult liaison team, which is the hospital psychiatry team, may be uh, very busy ruling out psychosomatic illnesses, which are said to be not explainable medically. Some of the risk factors for functional neurological symptom disorder are trauma, um, and it may have this symbolic meaning. So, for example, if the patient saw a husband cheating, that may lead to the sudden blindness. Um, and it's typically, uh, they've typically seen someone with the illness. And it may be related to a difficulty using words to describe emotions. So what happens is the body becomes their language and communicates for them. And so... I look at this as um, a term that one of my other dear mentors, um, Dr. Peng, had told me about called emotional constipation. Um, And the treatment for emotional constipation is learning ways to invite or express emotions versus rejecting them. So some of the biomedical tests that have looked at ruling in, ruling out um, conversion disorder are... uh, for example, the psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. It used to be called pseudo-seizures, but that implies that the patient is feigning symptoms, so now it's called psychogenic psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. Uh, So they'll look for an absence of uh, some of the labs that are associated with uh, seizures and also the brain activity. Um, And we can look for weakness by an arm drop test, so you kind of just have the patient drop their arm and Usually, if someone's not conscious of it, they will hit their head. But if they are, it may be a conversion disorder. It may, like, avoid their head. And for blindness, we use an optical kinetic drum test. And deafness, you may ask, can you hear me? And they say no. Yeah. (laughs) So looking at the personal lens, your personal lens is your assumptive world. And it's your unique viewpoint of self-experiences. And we know that our individual thoughts and ideas influence behaviors and actions. And there's a very personal way of experiencing emotions and sensations that we can try to explain to others, but it's very still deeply rooted in us. And our our lens assigns valence, so if things are positive versus negative. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, one of the things that it looks at is cognitive distortion. And this is why I also wanted to use the analogy of the lens. So um, these cognitive distortions um, can influence depression. And so if you're magnifying worst-case scenarios, that's like catastrophizing. If you're minimizing positive details, that's discounting the positive. If you're wearing polarized filters or colors, that can kind of change um, your perception of the world. So if it's only one color, it's overgeneralization. If it's only black and white, it's all or nothing thinking. And labeling is um, kind of things like saying that you're a failure. 
Or is there a special power to the lens? Can you see into the future or um, fortune telling? Or can you read the mind of others or mind reading? Or if you see it in your lens, you think it must be true. That's similar to emotional reasoning, where I feel it, therefore it must be true. Or is there this custom-made lens just for you, um, and that's a cognitive distortion of personalization or blame? So talking about the support system lens. So thinking about how does someone relate to our personal lens. It's really our human nature to look for patterns or relationships. So if you have this lens, you can notice it's a different shape lens and color and fit. And so there's a low chance for this lens to really see your point of view. And there runs this risk for um, the people around you to label you as other and a risk for a stigmatized or marginalized view. If you have this aviator lens, uh, it's a different color, but it, it's a similar fit. And there may be a greater chance to relating to your viewpoint and more empathy and connection with you. And so how do, how do you communicate your personal experiences of illnesses? Um, is it by finding shared features? Like our glasses have great, all have gradients of color, and it can be similar to saying we have all gone through a grieving process. Oh, so I wanted to talk about how I am linked to Northern California. Uh, so even when I was growing up in Singapore and every single year we would come to Yosemite National Park. Um, my father has been going for 40 years straight. And this is a picture of Tuolumne Meadows. It's one of my favorite places. In fact, I wrote about it in my medical school statement and also my uh, personal statement for residency. Um, and this is me in Yosemite a long time ago. I still have the same haircut. I just realized that. And, <laughs> um, and this is the tree that grows out of the rock. So I, I think this is a good um, analogy of resilience and um, expecting things to grow out of rocks, which is not expected. And I wanted to talk about growing together with this tree, Yosemite Park, and my family. So... This is me, um, probably in fifth grade, and my dad used this tree as a yardstick of our growth. And so that's my dad and me later on. And you can see the, the tree has also grown a little bit. And finally, you can see the tree has grown a little bit more there. So it's, it's towards the entrance of Yosemite Park, but it is um, something that has been very meaningful in my own journey. And so if we think about what constitutes healthy growth and relationships, we may be thinking about individualization um, in this society where we should be separating from early relationships. It's uh, usually more of a Western theme that promotes growth into um, an independent, self-reliant individual and respects a lot of autonomy and self-fulfillment as benchmarks for uh, growth and relationships. And then Suda talked talked to me about the relational cultural theory. She introduced this to me, and I thought it was like this braided money tree where there's periods of connection and then also disconnection. And the times that you're disconnected, there may be suffering, fear, and vulnerability, um, but it pushes you to desire reconnection, and it creates these opportunities for growth, for being mutually um, impacted by each other, and also developing your empathy, sensitivity to the impact of your actions onto others, and, and lastly, authenticity in relationships, sharing your inner experiences, thoughts, and feelings, which may actually promote other people to 
um, share that kind of level of authenticity in return. So lastly, I want to talk about mirror neurons. This is your special empathy lens. And um, Marco um, Icobani, in this, his book, Mirroring People, had this great quote, by helping us recognize the actions of other people, mirror neurons also help us to recognize and understand the deepest motives behind these actions, the intentions of the other individuals. So I noticed just now when I was talking about the ice pick lobotomy, I heard a lot of gas in the audience, and that's probably because you have this mirror neuron and you can kind of feel uh, what may, that person may have gone through. So suffering and pain through facial expressions. And when we think about relating to fictional characters, either through movies or books, that's also where our mirror neurons can work, or watching movement. So if someone picks up a cup, you can kind of intimately um, know what they're going through. So now I want to talk about gradients of trauma and suffering. And so I had started the course with this model of stress, um, which was designed to protect us from danger, leading to three automatic stress responses. So either moving towards the danger, so fight response, freezing at the site of danger, or moving away from danger, so flight. And long term, um, this can lead to it becoming a stressor and many of our life challenges. So that's the theme of our course. And I want to talk more about gradients of trauma or stressors and say that it's really specific to the individual's lens of suffering. So usually when we think about uh, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, we think of war veterans and those who have gone through things that are unspeakable of um, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, neglect, or abandonment. But, you know, suffering is really personal to the individual. So that can be related to common stressors, life challenges, or any kind of transitions you're going through, any kind of injury or grief, um, or even a change in your identity or your role. So even a diagnosis of an illness, um, I'm seeing it as trauma, uh, or a fear of recurrence of illness, of a fear of recurrence of cancer, or losing a job, uh, losing a loved one, including if they have um, memory issues with aging, and that's kind of changing their personality and cognition. And so uh, to diagnose post-traumatic stress disorder, I have this mnemonic. There's a stressor, and some of the symptoms are reactivity um, and hyperarousal, avoidance, intrusion symptoms like flashbacks and nightmares, and negative mood and cognition. So uh, the mnemonic I have is RAIN for... um, one month or more. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was inspired here to talk about the work of Gabor Mate, and he has this book called When the Body Says No, Exploring the Stress Disease Connection. He really focuses on adverse childhood experiences. Um, in our psychiatry wor- world, this may be related to attach- Bowlby's um, attachment theory. And he uses this word of proximate separation Um, leading to how we develop our patterns of self-soothing. So if the parent is physically present but emotionally absent, um, either they have, um, you can see here, anxiety or they're avoidant um, or they're just going through their own stressors, it's really nothing bad on the parents. Um, They're going through their own stressors themselves, but they may not be as available to connect with the child. So the key here is the child's perspective perspective on their attachment to the parents. So even if we think that the child had a stereotypically good childhood. 
And the child may conjure up this maladaptive thought that if I show my emotions, it only adds to my parents' load. And they may suppress your, their own needs um, and the, or, or emotions that are needed to maintain the attachment relationship with the parent. And with these emotional needs unfilled, unfulfilled, that can lead to that term again um, by Tracy Peng, uh, emotional constipation. And so I have this diagram or this picture here of thinking of the oxygen mask. Um, when you're when you're flying, you're supposed to put your oxygen mask before you uh, help your child. But in this case, I'm looking at it as the child helping the the parent put on their oxygen mask and kind of focusing on that. So if this becomes life long, uh, where this individual learns to express high concern for the emotional needs of others while suppressing their own needs, um, this person may value this push-through mentality, um, duty, and self-sacrifice, and where that is really valued is in helping and healing professions. So they may have a lot of positive reinforcement to keep doing this push-through mentality and um, maintaining a sense of duty and self-sacrifice. And so a form of addiction that can happen, we can call it workaholism, um, to kind of fulfill these values that they've developed. And if someone has um, keeps suppressing their needs, um, they may not notice at first because there are these stress adrenaline patterns that gives you energy and helps you push through. But I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but once you rest, all these neglected needs surface again, and this may be like getting sick again after a stressful project is finally complete. And so one of Gabramate's thoughts is, is illness one way that the body signals that emotional needs are neglected? Is it a wake-up call, and it, is it supposed to be the language to help us think about um, what we need to change in our behavior. So Gabramate also talks about trauma and addiction um, as ways to kind of uh, soothe distress, soothe pain or escape from distress. So if you think about the substances um, involved in soothing pain, opiates soothe both emotional and physical pain. Uh, cocaine and alcohol are local anesthetics, so numbing agents. And um, if we look at the brain when someone is emotionally rejected, it's the same parts of the brain light up as if you had struck them with a knife. And so we could be using um, some of the addictive substances out there to also motivate action. Right? So stimulants motivate action. Um, and then these are two examples of um, this infant monkey separated from their mothers, which inhibits uh, dopamine in the, the part that, um, of the brain that leads to decision-making. And then in maternal depression, um, increase the increase of the stress hormone uh, leaving, leading to potential attention issues in the child. So how do we heal emotional constipation? And um, I've said this before, it's our natural nature to try to reject Things you know, if you value push through or self sacrifice to reject the emotions, but learning to invite the feelings instead, and it's akin to mindfulness tenets of presence, being attuned to your body cues, being non judgmental and compassionate of yourself, and being open and aware. So uh, now I want to talk about integrative therapies for trauma, 
And um, this bowl here is uh, a form of Japanese ceramic art. It's called kintsugi. And I, I, I found it very interesting because um, with a broken bowl, they're using gold um, alloy to mend and also even highlight the cracks of this broken bowl. And so when we think about um, the deepest, darkest life challenges, how do we deepen our capacity to live life fully? And I like this quote um, by Abigail, Abigail Adams. It's not in the still calm of life or the repose of a Pacific station that great characters are formed. The habits of a vigorous mind are formed in contending with difficulties. So again, it's the theme of our um, mini med school of embracing life challenges and finding balance. So uh, lastly, I want to talk about the neurobiology of healing trauma with integrative modalities. Um, and I'm drawing this analogy as inspired by Dr. Vander Kalk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, which I highly recommend. Um, there are three parts of the brain that I'll be talking about, the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, and the thalamus. So the thalamus is where your sensory input comes in, and it has two jobs. It either filters that sensory input, um, or it, and it mixes the, end, the sensory input. So when it filters out irrelevant input, um, if you have a problem with that, that can lead to this constant sensory overload where you can't shut down. And it usually functions to stir up sensory input into this integrated, coherent soup. So if you have an issue there, that can lead to these isolated sensory fragments that we see in, in trauma. So from that point, uh, the stimuli usually takes two pathways. It can either go to your primitive emotional brain or your amygdala. And because um, we're looking at this like a smoke alarm, um, to decide if the threat, there really is a threat there. It has first divs on, it's a quicker pathway from the thalamus to amygdala. Uh, and the other pathway is the medial prefrontal cortex, and this takes several milliseconds longer. So to talk about the amygdala, the analogy that Dr. Vanderkalk uses is uh, that it's like a smoke alarm. So it's evaluating if the threat is um, if the incoming stimuli is a threat to our survival. And it elicits the help of the hypothalamus, which is related to fight, flight, and freeze, um, and also pushes out our stress and adrenaline hormones. But once the danger has passed, usually the body gets back to its normal state. It also talks to um, your memory center to relate new input to past experiences. And in trauma, you may have an overactive smoke alarm. So it's kind of like a hyperactive alarm system. And it may misinterpret whether the situation is dangerous or safe. And this leads to potential prolonged startle or aggressive outbursts. And someone may um, use substances to kind of numb strong sensations. Uh, and then the medial prefrontal cortex um, is what we call a watchtower. And it's your rational conscious brain. It's directly above your eyes, so it gives you the big picture view. And it refines your interpretation of what's going on before reacting. Um, and so as long as you're not too upset, its job is to help you realize that the threat is a false alarm. So for example, oh, actually my house is not on fire. The smoke alarm went off because I'm cooking. Um, but in trauma, there's theories that the medial prefrontal cortex is not active as much as it should be. And that's why this emergency hyperactive amygdala emergency response system dominates and becomes more difficult to control emotions and impulses. So how do we address this? 
there's what we call bottom-up and top-down approaches. So bottom-up, it's usually accessing um, like your breathing or your heart rate, um, the, the things that relate to your autonomic nervous system, and it integrates breath, movement, and touch. So some of the examples are yoga, dancing, playing music, and body work. And we also have to strengthen our prefrontal cortex so that it is a watchtower that is calmly, objectively looking over our thoughts. And breathing actually hits both of these because it's under um, involuntary and voluntary control. So how do we tone down the hyperactive amygdala? We can use a bottom-up approach where we recalibrate this um, autonomic nervous system. And again, it's back to the basics of breath, movement, and touch. And the goal is so that your smoke alarm is still there, but it's just no longer falsely reactive and kind of um, going on all day long, you know, uh, that it appropriately defends against danger and it helps you take care of your body the way it should. And these are some examples of toning down the hyperactive amygdala through a bottom-up approach that involves um, breathing and movement. So meditation, yoga, dancing and expressive movement therapy, martial arts, capoeira, tai chi, qigong, drumming, chanting, and even choral singing. Uh, yoga and um, chanting and choral singing is um, maybe part of yoga and some religious practices. So biofeedback is another way. Biofeedback is a way to monitor our psychophysiological changes, like your heart rate breathing patterns, your carbon dioxide, your skin temperature, how much you're sweating, and your muscle tension. And by concretely seeing it on um, the screen, you can get a better picture of what your body's like automatic responses are and um, develop the skill to address um, stress in a different way. And we actually have a biofeedback practitioner at the OSHA Center, uh, Dr. Chris Gilbert, who works on this approach. So touch, it's a natural way for humans to calm down in distressing a situation, and it reduces excessive arousal. Um, we can think of our natural inclination to hug a friend when they're distressed. Um, and body work is part of this category, including massage, cranial psychotherapy. And um, this is another way to tap into the amygdala sensory integration clinics where uh, children may dive into tubs filled with all these different colors and tactile things that they can touch. And how do we strengthen the hypoactive prefrontal cortex? We can use a, what's called a top-down approach, um, where uh, it is the, the prefrontal cortex is hovering calmly and objectively over our thoughts um, so that we allow the time to kind of modulate those hardwired um, primitive emotional automatic reactions. And it's actually a prerequisite for safely uh, revisiting trauma, it, to learn to observe and tolerate uh, your physical reactions. And uh, strengthening the watchtower's ability to monitor sensations may promote a sense of autonomy, improves your self-awareness um, and your um, view of yourself, and tuning attention towards your thoughts, emotions, and physical sensations um, in a more detailed way. So um, this is an example of mindfulness, meditation, and yoga. Uh, of first, allowing your mind to focus on sensations, and then notice that in contrast to that ever-present experience of trauma with the intrusion and flashbacks, 
that physical sensations are transient and there are slight shifts in your body, your position, um, your breathing patterns. And so we may think that we can apply this to shifts in our thinking, that our thinking can be transient. Um, and the next step would be labeling the physical sensation. So when I feel anxious, I feel a crushing sensation in my chest and noticing how that sensation changes when you're taking a deep breath in and out. So again, breathing is under both conscious and autonomic or uh, involuntary control. Uh, so this is a video from the University of Wisconsin Integrative Medicine Program, which is a large part of our training in um, the fellowship at the Osher Center. And I want you to look at um, all of these almonds at once. And I'm wondering, what do you see? Anyone? Is it moving? It's moving. Yeah, it's like little waves, right? <laughs> So now I want you to just focus on one almond and see what happens. It stops, yeah. So this is kind of an example of using mindfulness. And I just thought it was a nice one, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, lastly, repairing the thalamus. Uh, so we talked about the thalamus being our filter and also our mixer. And so in trauma, if you have deficits there, the individual may be engulfed by these sensory emotional elements of their past, and the trauma kind of has their life, its life of its own because the person may not be able to avoid sensory overload or kind of integrate the fragments of like flashbacks or nightmares. And so how do we reprocess trauma in a safe way so that trauma isn't dominating our life and it's, we can see like the rest of the lang landscape there so we can put trauma back in its proper place in the overall arc of life? Uh, so this is one way, um, in the eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. It's thought to work on the thalamus. Um, so there's this bilateral sensory input. It can be side-to-side uh, -side movements, um, but it's different than hypnosis. You know, it may be side-to-side -side movements like this, and the therapist may use um, like a, a wand to go back and forth or touch um, your, your thighs like back and forth like this. Or there can be kind of two, um, two wooden sticks that you would hold that kind of create electrical impulses. Uh, so it's theorized to be associated with rapid eye movement sleep, where eyes go back and forth. That's what, why it's called rapid eye movement. And the thought that dreaming forges new relationships of unrelated memories. So it's thought that uh, EMDR, or the eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy, is a way to kind of um, shake up your relationships, like your deep connections to the normal pathways of trauma, and put the traumatic experience into the larger context um, so you can gain some perspective. And in, in this way, um, there's usually no need to reverbalize the trauma as well, and so it avoids re-traumatization. So again, we've talked about some um, bottom-up uh, approaches and also some top-down approaches here. And, and breathing hits both of them. And so I just want to say with loving kindness, thank you for sharing your lens with me. And I have many people to thank. So my dear patients, you, the audience, um, Suda, of course, <laughs> uh, and many of my mentors at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. Um, 
and also at the Osher Mini Medical School, Nancy um, and our IT team, and definitely, again, the audience, and then Chelsea helped uh, bridge the link between Osher Mini Medical School um, with, with Suda and I. And Silver Cavedo, who uh, was a veteran of the Osher Center, also speaking with us, and we've also appreciated David Lukoff and Geronima Cortese and Jim Duffy. And I also want to thank my faculty attendings and co-residents when I was attending University of Hawaii the Psychiatry Residency Program, and um, my, my fellow colleagues at the UPMC Center for Integrative Medicine and the medical students, faculty and preceptors that were involved in the Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine, the dynamic evolution of conventional medical care and integrative health, um, my family and friends, and of course, my life challenges and joys. And so these are some of the resources um, that I referenced in today's talk, and I think, except for um, the life, life After the Diagnosis, which I think is a really good book on looking at um, uh, having a diagnosis being a kind of like tra traumatic process and how to work with that. And it's actually written by Dr. Pantelat, who is here at UCSF. And I want to also say that all of these slides are um, available on the website, including all of our speakers' slides, so uh, you can access it there. And, and at this point, I want to invite Suda up here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. And we just want to end by talking about some of the resources at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. So this is our website, uh, osher.ucsf.edu. And that's our center that's in the Mount Zion campus um, that is near, uh, like on Divisadero and Post Street by Japantown area. And um, these are some of the values that the Osher Center embodies, whole person care, equity, compassion, collaboration, focus on wellness and empowerment that really drew me to the Osher Center. And here are kind of a little sampling of all the services that we have on our fourth floor, which is our clinic floor. So integrative medicine consultation, integrative cancer care, integrative psychiatry and psychotherapy, integrative peds, integrative uh, women's health manual medicine, um, and spinal manipulation, biofeedback, uh, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, including Suda, um, and uh, integrative nutrition, guided imagery, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, and massage therapy. And so I wanted to talk a little bit more about our integrative psychiatry team, including Suda and Tracy Peng. So we're board-certified psychiatric doctors that are trained in conventional and complementary medicine. And these are some of the benefits of treatment that you can find on our website. So in order to make an appointment, the first step starts usually with a phone interview to kind of see uh, what are your pressing needs and how we can best serve you. And uh, this is the number, 415-353-7700. And so some of our um, the benefits of integrative mental health treatment are really tailoring our treatment plan to the individual. And this can include any of the following. So exploration into the interaction of the mind, body, and spirit and your environment and accessing your own intuitive capacities to guide your life. Um, conventional medications, we still prescribe that along with supplements, botanicals, and herbal remedies. 
conventional psychotherapies, including cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, psychodynamic or insight-oriented therapy, dream work, some uh, symbology, and I do a lot of motivational interviewing as well. And expressive creative arts therapy, meditation, mindfulness, guided imagery, visualization, and relaxation. Um, I also do pharmacogenomic testing, especially for um, patients which I feel like have a lot of uh, drugs, um, potential drug herbal interactions going on. Uh, and Suda also does Ayurvedic massage, nutritional counseling, yoga and movement exercises, and mandala dra- drawing. And our goal is really to create this integrative plan so that we can discuss what are the buffet of options um, that best suit your needs and collaborate with your treatment team. So lastly, I want to talk about the public classes that we have available at the Osher Center. Um, And that includes even like laughter yoga uh, and the mindfulness-based stress reduction class. And of course, you are part of the Osher Mini Med School for the public class. And um, we're part of a network of integrative medicine enthusiasts. So this is uh, the OSHA Collaborative for Integrative Medicine, and it comprises of this international group of seven academic centers funded by Bernard Osher, who that's why we call it the Osher Mini Med School, um, to study, teach, and practice integrative medicine. So I feel very proud that we just celebrated um, almost our 20th anniversary at uh, the UCSF OSHA Center for Integrated Medicine. And then in 2001, Harvard came along. Then 2005, the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. 2014, Vanderbilt and Northwestern. Uh, 2017, University of Miami. And then finally, we, the newest addition is University of Washington. And and these are some resources. I like natural medicines because it's a way to look at complementary alternative um, therapies and see what the level of evidence is for them, but also to look at drug interactions with conventional medicines and herbal remedies. Uh, If you're at UCSF, it's part of the library database. And uh, I had referenced the National Institute of Health National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health here. And this is also um, a good resource, their Office of Dietary Supplements. And and so that's it. Thank you, Selena. Wonderful closing talk that was a huge overview of our whole course, actually, and many of the topics we covered. I do want to say before we move into the question phase, um, a lot of you were interested after the first session I had given on Ayurveda. You had contacted me about the Ayurveda group treatment that we were considering starting at the Osher Center, as well as individual Ayurveda consultations. I just wanted to let those folks know that that's definitely happening. So uh, we're going to be doing that starting in July. So if any of you are interested in that group therapy, um, or in the individual consultations. I know some of you had already contacted me, but if there are others who haven't yet, please do so, and I'll get back to you with some additional information about that. And that's a great question. The question was, why did we not cover hypnotherapy? There's just a, just a range of complementary therapies that we just obviously can't cover every single one. There's literally hundreds of them. But actually, hypnotherapy has a very special place in the realm of integrative psychiatry because it was one of the very first therapies that was considered like a complementary treatment that um, like Freud and Breuer and some of the very early uh, psychiatrists actually use that particular therapy to ha- access the unconscious. And um, I'm actually trained in hypnotherapy, and we actually use it quite a bit in 
hospital consultation psychiatry. So when we are working with patients that are in the ICU or that are recovering from chemotherapy or have chronic pain syndromes, it's a very, very effective modality that we can use to actually help lower pain or make people more um, comfortable. And there's a lot of data behind it, actually, so it's one of the best researched areas. So thank you for bringing that up. Okay, so if I could rephrase your question then about um, you're, you're sort of bringing up the idea of computers and the use of technology really becoming dominant in healthcare and whether we see that as a, a threat or in some ways going against some of the principles of integrative medicine. Would that capture your question? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Do you well, want to tackle that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well I, I think with um, the invent of the even the electronic medical record, it's actually been very helpful to coordinate with different providers, and that's one of the aspects of integrative medicine. Having said that, I think a lot of the providers out there have been really sucked into looking at the computer screens, so that can uh, detract from the presence with the patient. Um, there are some other ways that technology can be helpful. Um, there's this uh, virtual reality exposure uh, therapy that I've seen with the, even with a smartphone that's helping patients with um, like a fear of heights or social anxiety disorder. And I just learned of these Google Glasses that are out there um, for patients with autism that help them recognize some of the social cues out there. So in that way, I, I do think that some of the technologies can be helpful. Having said that, I also wonder if it's decreasing our ability to connect human to human, you know, that interface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, in fact, uh, the advent of technological medicine or high-tech medicine uh, towards the late 70s, that was really one of the uh, impetuses in this country for uh, people going back to an earlier model, like earlier traditions, indigenous healing traditions, looking for healing paradigms for from other parts of the world or from other parts of culture that had been essentially evicted from Western biomedical model by the Flexner report and by the heavy push for a science-based curriculum that dominated in the early 20th century. Um, So I think as high-tech medicine uh, started to be recognized as as not always being successful, as sometimes failing human beings, the the case of Karen Ann Quinlan in the late 70s was really a kind of benchmark for, uh, I think, the the public perception of high-tech medicine really having drawbacks to it. Um, This was a young woman who was basically kept on life support despite um, basically being brain dead and being in a vegetative state. And uh, her family was fighting to to disconnect uh, her from life support so that she could essentially die with dignity. And uh, at that time, the hospital system that Karen Ann was hospitalized in were concerned um, that that would go against their Hippocratic Oath and would go against the idea of doing their utmost to save her life. So it became a sort of battle between the high-tech medical specialist, and then her family that really wanted her to be able to die at home with surrounded by loved ones and not by machinery, and really having um, a, a rite of passage, you know, having a right to a death with dignity. And I think that really highlights some of the, the um, underlying, I think, ethical and humanistic concerns that are embedded in that question that you've asked. Um, and I think that integrative medicine, it wasn't a coincidence that all of, like Andrew Wilde, Deepak Chopra, some of the pioneers in integrative 
integrative medicine really rose to prominence um, in the late 70s, early 80s, in part because people were having a second look at high tech and really wondering, is this really everything that it's cracked up to be, or are there some drawbacks? And so integrative medicine was really um, a way of taking a step back and taking a bigger perspective. And some of those alternate healing paradigms that had been sort of tossed out in the early 20th century by the Flexner Report, people started coming back and looking at them and saying, hey, what about Chinese medicine? What about yoga? What about meditation? Is there something about this approach to healing that will help us reconnect with these humanistic aspects that are getting lost in a very, very technologically driven medical model? So the question is about um, physical manifestations that you may see with trauma. So a lot of the um, things that are respond, uh, re- related to your stress response system, including like your increased heart rate or um, gastrointestinal system, and um, that slide that I had on the differential of anxiety, um, I view trauma as a spectrum of anxiety. So you may see a lot of those phys- physical symptoms. So I may bring back that slide if you'd like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this slide here um, is some of the physical manifestations that can come uh, with anxiety, so uh, ad- addressing your hormone systems and uh, things that relate to your heart systems and lung systems. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? Or? Okay, well, I've, I've got a couple of ideas about that. Um, I, I think that um, what Selena had put up is like a really important slide. Actually, the I think the one after that, the the, the brain gut response oh, yeah. maybe mm-hmm. like uh, for example you know she's talking about how the enteric nervous system actually contains like a lot of the receptors for neurotransmitters in our body and I'm really struck uh, I've been working with uh, within the realm of post-traumatic stress disorder I've done a lot of work with sexual assault survivors and survivors of childhood sexual abuse and I'm often struck by the fact that um, uh, unexplained abdominal pain or chronic pelvic pain is a very common, common manifestation of people that have gone through those particular types of traumatic sequelae. And yet, when we do a medical workup, we can't find a specific cause um, for that you know, unexplained pelvic pain. And so then, um, in the past, we used to say, well, this is a psychosomatic. You know, It might have been dismissed as a psychosomatic manifestation of the stress or the trauma that they've gone through. But now we have these like very very, um, you know, very interesting emerging fields showing how much of, you know, our serotonin system, for example, lives in our gut. And so the person is perhaps expressing, you know, that that sexual trauma that they have gone through, um, through an unexplained abdominal pain, which in the past could have been seen as not really being related to the psychological trauma that they've gone through. But now there's a really nice emerging explanatory model for why that might actually be um, getting triggered, you know, in terms of the pelvic pain. Now, of course, I'm not trying to dismiss that there's also a lot of symbolic value, obviously, you know, in something like that, because the, the physical, you know, in terms of the body keeps a score, like the body remembers at some level like where the injury occurred. And in terms of sexual trauma, it's not you know, a hard leap to make in terms of why symbolically there might be pain in the pelvic region and so on. But I'm just like really struck by how much as this emerging 
neurological model tells us about where additional sources of pain and stress could be manifest, this could be one of those. Um, another way that I see post-traumatic stress disorder as having physical sequela, um, you know, we were talking earlier on about how much is emerging in terms of chromosomal changes, genetic changes that happen as a result of chronic stress. So, you know, telomerase gets shorter and shorter, which means that the cell's ability to repair itself and be able to heal and be resilient in the face of, you know, stress and stress hormones becomes less and less. And so when that happens, basically the body continues to break down. Cellular mechanisms break down. So with post-traumatic stress disorder, we often and see people that, you know, look 10, 20, 30 years older than someone else of that same biological age. And I've often wondered, what is the explanation for that? And now I think we have a much better idea of some of those cellular mechanisms, you know, of repair and the immune system effects of chronic stress, which really mitigate against those self-healing aspects of our own system. And I, I just wanted to add um, this example of conversion disorder yeah. or functional neurological symptom disorder as a physical manifestation of trauma. And so one of our main treatments for things like the psychogenic non-epileptic seizure is um, psychotherapy to address the trauma. So this is what Sudo was just talking about, that trauma may have a symbolic meaning. Um, so some people that... Um, Saw, like saw their husband cheating, it can lead to that sudden blindness. So it has a deep impact on, on the body. Yeah, so the question is about um, severe levels of psychiatric distress and trauma and how we may apply that in an integrative model. And to answer your question, I think it really starts with um, the, the whole definition of integrative medicine to me is really focusing on the individual's narrative and starting to carefully kind of un- unpeel the layers as they will allow, and looking at that patient's um, personal values, how that was shaped, and what are there um, in this story that was told about the adoptive parents um, and the, the child bonding um, from this child that was in an orphanage in Romania. So looking at both of their narratives together. Uh, so what integrative medicine means to me, at least, is really just tuning into the individual's story and their, their lens. Mm-hmm. Um, Well, I think we have a lot of developing, really exciting developing programs at the Osher Center that we welcome you to um, see. There's a lot of classes out there, but in terms of um, this privilege to share this course with you, it's been wonderful working with my mentor, Suda, here. And um, we will be speaking at the American Psychiatric Association on holistic um, approaches to treat PTSD. Um, And there's an integrative mental health conference that's coming from the University of Arizona on the 15th to 17th of this month um, at the Hilton SF that um, you can start exploring some of the integrative mental health approaches. But we also welcome you to talk to us directly and kind of uh, learn about your specific interests. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the question was about using psychedelic um, treatments for um, like PTSD or, or trauma. And we had a great talk, our second session, by Silver Cavedo, who is running some of the phase, free, phase three trials, uh, looking at MDMA as a psychedelic to address uh, trauma. And it's specifically opening kind of the, the landscape so that trauma isn't so sticky in its ingrained patterns. So I definitely see... 
um, potential there. Uh, but because we live in a conventional medical model, we need to have like studies to back up um, these things coming into mainstream medicine. So that, that's kind of where it is right now. But um, looking at the potential for helping out, it could be helpful. Mm -hmm. So like that, uh, that study that Dr. Cavedo was talking about is actually still in uh, the phase three trial, which means it's not yet FDA approved. So until it becomes an FDA approved treatment, we're probably not going to be offering it at the Usher Center. Um, but in the future, yeah. why not? Yes, if it becomes mm -hmm. approved, absolutely, it could be incorporated. That's a great question. So the question has to do with um, context in which uh, a patient might feign symptoms and what might be going on with them on a psychological level um, to motivate that kind of behavior. Um, this is actually uh, a perfect question for what we call a psychiatry consult uh, um, liaison, and that's the field that I'm actually in. So I, we consult a lot at, the, at San Francisco General Hospital. That's actually one of the places where I work. And uh, we, this is, there's, a, there's a whole way of looking at individuals that may have, um, uh, that may have symptoms that um, are, are being fabricated, essentially. So one, we have to differentiate between like three different you know, reasons for that. So one is just what we call malingering, which is what a lot of people, unfortunately, lump all of uh, the people that might feign symptoms into this category. So malingering means that you're consciously making up that symptom for uh, what we call secondary gain, which means for like a very specific benefit, like getting SSI, like being able to collect disability income, or being able to um, get out of uh, being drafted into the army, or some such thing. So there's a very clear-cut reason that doesn't have to do uh, with being ill, per se, but there's a secondary benefit of being ill that you're trying to benefit from. But that's actually not as common as you might think. Um, there's a couple of other reasons, though, uh, that people might feign illness from a psychological standpoint, which I think are actually more interesting. And one of them has to do with um, uh, what we call... Um, uh, yeah, like factitious disorder. I was trying to think about <laughs> another, like a, a more common language sort of way of doing that. But yeah, but the idea with factitious disorder is that you may be aware consciously that you're feigning the symptom, but you are not actually um, clear on why, that the actual reason for it might be unconscious. And this is a very, very large seg segment, a surprisingly large segment of people that come into the general hospital setting who might feign illness. They're not actually malingering. Um, they might know. They might know when they're confronted that they're actually um, feigning the symptom, but they cannot tell you actually why they're doing that. And that often has to do then with helping them to understand unconscious motivations. So for example, um, uh, we had a patient who came in uh, to San Francisco General, um, and she was actually injecting bacteria into her bloodstream so that she was getting septa, you know, septicemia, and she was having all of these um, you know, blood cultures showing positive for infection. Uh, she would get treated. She would go home 
in pretty good shape and then come back again, you know, in a month with, you know, a different strain of bacteria in her blood. She was finally caught injecting this material um, on the inpatient unit. So we were able to actually work with her on understanding what was going on. And she said, I know, I know that I shouldn't be doing this, but I just can't help it. I just want to keep doing this. And so we basically were able to um, tease out after a lot of working with her on the inpatient unit that you know her mother had apparently died of um, she her mother uh, when she was a very young child her mother had died at uh, when she was age ten when the, when the child when the patient was age ten the mother had died after um, getting a puncture wound uh, some sort of nail or something that uh, she had stepped on that she didn't get treated she eventually ended up um, becoming uh, very septic and dying and the patient doesn't didn't actually know at the time what exactly was going on because everyone was trying to protect her and didn't tell her why um, the mom had died, but she had somehow picked up that there was something to do with an infection in the blood, and she um, was very, very heartbroken as a young child, didn't really understand why it was happening, but why it had happened, why her mother was gone. No one actually wanted to get into the details of it because they thought they were protecting her. But in the end, it actually sort of backfired because she had this feeling, and her mother was a particular age when she died. I think her mother was uh, 37 when she died. And this patient started injecting her stool like at age 37. <laughs> and she had never never made that connection before. Like, why? Why was this happening now? So this is just like an example of factitious disorder, because she knew she was doing it, and she couldn't really explain why, and it took a lot of teasing apart, you know, using psychotherapy to actually help her understand how she was actually coping with the loss of her mother, and feeling that she herself should die at age 37, because her mother hadn't lived beyond 37, and so it was somehow like a survivor guilt that she was actually getting, you know, to a point that was that where she might exceed the age of her mother. That's just a little little glimpse into that. Yes, it is very difficult because, as I said, it's a diff- many people confuse malingering with this kind of unconscious desire to fabricate symptoms or feign symptoms. So I think we're out of time right now, and we welcome some individual questions. But we really, really want to thank you for joining us this whole course. Yeah. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.